So I've been thinking of late that these are really interesting times to be a preacher. Current conditions have challenged the status quo for churches and ministers of the gospel. The fractious political culture dividing American citizens doesn't offer an especially receptive environment for the call to spiritual unity. Today, Jesus teaches that we are supposed to love our enemies, and I guess that includes everyone with whom we disagree, strongly disagree. That's a hard discipline, isn't it? It's a hard discipline. And there are a lot of opinions among Christians about how politics should or should not find their way into church. As you've heard me say before, I like to remind people that Jesus was not a partisan, but he did die a political death at the hands of the state. He was accused and executed for sedition, as in promoting discontent or rebellion against the government. That didn't exactly describe his mission, but on the other hand, it it held several grains of truth. Well, over the years, this has led me to keep a clear-eyed focus on the heart of what it means to love God and neighbor, on the heart of it, and then letting the chips fall where they may. In this way, the point was never about learning to behave or sound like a Republican or Democrat in here, but like a Christian, committed to the ethical system appropriate for the citizens of the kingdom of God. And I've tried to maintain that discipline over the years. But followers after the way of Jesus will inevitably find themselves engaged in matters of public policy. To love authentically has political consequences up and down the scale of importance as Jesus' own life exemplifies. You know, as example, since this is President's Weekend, We might consider our nation's blood-drenched road to the abolition of slavery. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, was a staunch abolitionist. That was the result of his Christian faith. According to Wesley, you could not be a Methodist and a slaveholder simultaneously. There was no middle ground on the matter. To be sort of against slavery, but to do nothing to stop it, was really to be sort of for it, for the end result was exactly the same. There was a political consequence, in other words, to the matter of how we were supposed to love among the races. 
Now, I've always appreciated that Christ Church has assembled a broadly diverse congregation over the last three decades, Republicans and Democrats among them, more than 50 different nationalities and ethnicities from all walks of life. Despite this diversity, we discover that we share many of the same questions about suffering and meaning. And over the years, I've often heard that congregants seek simple instruction and clear direction. You desire a clear point of view anchored in the wisdom of our tradition fashioned through thousands of years of human struggle. The music, the preaching, the praying, the architecture can all provide important and powerful sacred stimulus. But after all is said and done, what should we do may be the relevant question. How shall we live? And then as if responding to that specific concern, today's assigned readings speak directly. First from Leviticus. Did you catch that first line? You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. Tell you what, take that home with you today. Let that rattle round deep inside of you. And don't be encumbered by the pietistic accretions of that word holy. Because the text goes on to describe what it means to be holy, in case you're confused. And what does it mean? Well, I don't know if you heard it, but it said, did you hear that wonderful phrase about don't don't, um, harvest your fields to the extremities? You're supposed to leave the remnants for whom? You remember? Did you hear it? The poor and the alien. Isn't that interesting? That's what it means to be holy. We should live lives of integrity. That is, we shouldn't lie, cheat, or steal. We should have compassionate regard for others. We should love justice. You should not hate or take vengeance or bear a grudge. Indeed, In summary, you should love your neighbor as yourself. That's the first time that phrase appears in the scriptural text, by the way. And you know, as if that wasn't clear and direct enough, some hundreds of years later, Jesus ups the ante by radicalizing the old teaching. In the paraphrase of Eugene Peterson, that's entitled The Message. Do you know this book, The Message, by Eugene Peterson? Eugene Peterson 
translated the entire scripture into a very contemporary idiom that makes it extremely intelligible, and it's highly regarded across denominational lines. The way Peterson writes, translates this passage, or a portion of it, goes like this. Jesus says, you're familiar with the old law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. In other words, evidently, that's how that admonition was then being interpreted in Jesus' current culture. We should love the people we like, right? I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true God-created selves. This is what God does. God gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish, to everyone regardless, the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. In short, grow up. You are kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. That's bracing, isn't it? Now, I don't know what you came expecting to hear today. What kernel of an idea for self-improvement or pathway to happiness? Likely it was not. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now, if you've hung around church for any period of time, well, even if you haven't, you have probably heard this admonition from Jesus and, like most people, have dismissed it as hopelessly utopian. Love your enemy? Yeah, yeah, right, Steve, I'll get right on that. But you know, every once in a while, exemplars arise that clarify the matter. Consider these words of Martin Luther King, Jr. that he wrote in 1958. Since the white man's personality is greatly distorted by segregation and his soul is greatly scarred, he needs the love of the Negro. The Negro must love the white man because the white man needs his love to remove his tensions, insecurities, and fears. Agape, that's the main Greek word in the New Testament for love. Agape is not a weak, passive love. It is love in action. Agape love seeks to preserve and create community. It does not stop at the first mile, but it goes the second mile to restore community. It is a willingness to forgive, not seven times, but 70 times seven, to restore community. If I respond to hate with a reciprocal hate, I do nothing but intensify the cleavage in broken community. I can only close the gap in broken community by meeting hate with love. And then we easily recognize this love had political consequences. It still does. It still does. Now with 2020 hindsight, 
I invite anyone to suggest how King's words do not square in their entirety with Jesus' instruction. What I can tell you as one who lived through that time period as a young person, much of Christian America would not have seen this strikingly obvious truth and its ramifications for our society since it was spoken by a black preacher. I saw that as a kid. I knew it. I swear to God I knew at the time this was crazy. And in retrospect, it's a real head-scratcher. I mean, how could those who claimed they followed after the way Jesus blazed get it so fundamentally, categorically wrong? At a time, a popular critique of civil rights talk in church was that politics shouldn't come inside the church door, which, even as a kid I knew, was a cover for the incipient racism that filled the pews. I knew it. I saw it in my family. Jesus was lost in the noise. Completely lost. And it was forgotten he died a political death. An uncomfortable truth, better left unsaid. Every now and again, I like to return to G.K. Chesterton's famous quip. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Love my enemy, you say. Pray for those who persecute me. Hmm, well, then. You know, one of the regular criticisms leveled at the church, and you've probably heard it every now and then, goes like this. What difference does it really make? What difference does the church make other than dividing people up into those that belong and those that don't? What's its purpose? For all the great music and architecture, so what, really? And it's just here that our desire for clear, direct teaching meets Jesus as though for the very first time. Notice that he does not say the point of it all is right doctrines. Nothing about agreeing to a correct set of propositions about God, something we Christians tend to fight about as of absolutely greatest importance. Instead, Jesus says that in God's kingdom of grace, our primary interest should concern, you know the answer, where I'm going. It should concern how well we love one another. Honestly, I think it's a lot easier to argue about the fine points of a creed than it is to love one's enemy. A lot easier. Arguing about who's got it right, who's got the right set of words, who's in, who's out, is a fantastic distraction. Indeed, doesn't one's enemy often follow a different creed? Isn't that the truth? And this disagreeable person doesn't need to live in a faraway land. Again, in our incredibly shrinking world, Chesterton had his finger on the truth when he said, 
The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, dot, 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 probably because they are generally the same people. You know, gosh, when I, when I was thinking about these things this week, it, it's very rattling if you take it on. You know, I've been at this business a long time. I know these words well. And even this week when I was going over this again, I tell you, they turn me upside down and inside out, and I have to re-examine the furniture yet again of my interior life. It's an incredibly daunting agenda that's set before us. And if you, if you kind of let it sink in, it, it becomes breathtaking and bracing and ennobling and life-altering. You feel yourself begin, beginning to change almost instantly. You can feel the energy surging up through you, even if you don't quite get what it's all about or how it's going to play out in your own life. And you know, friends, you're not going to hear about this anywhere else. At least I don't. Do you have another location where you're going to have conversation like this about these sorts of things that really get down to the brass tacks? The poet Robert Browning captured the essence of our circumstance in his famous line, Ah, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? We're meant to stretch beyond our current condition, reaching all the way into the kingdom of God. That's what I'm about. That's what I'm attempting to do with my life and energy. And that's what we'll be praying in a moment, you know. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Maybe you can hear it in a fresh way today. This yearning for the better way prompted Paul to write, This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus, because our citizenship is in heaven. That's a radical statement, people. Make no mistake about it. And friends, if the pursuit of the better way then tugs at your heart, then you are well on your way to joining the ranks of those who are bent on changing the world. Love's rabble-rousing revolutionaries! Exclamation point. And make no mistake, friends, make no mistake, just as with Jesus and the disciples, there may come a moment to stand up, and raise your hand and be counted among the righteous.